Spirit. It's a term often used in the Bible, but very often it is misunderstood. Why? We looked at that a little bit because it's fairly complex, and we pointed out those things on the screen. It has that physical dimension, an emotional, moral, that philosophical dimension. Uh, I think it was Tim Keller put it, that kind of existential angst. And we looked at that from Proverbs 14, verse 13, which says this, Even in laughter, the heart is sad, and the end of joy is grief. I even heard uh, someone uh, this week say, everything in this world is rancid. And that picks up on that kind of thing. Any joy that we might glean from anything in this world, whether it's a relationship, a job, whatever it may be, the reality that that existential angst, that that philosophical dimension of the cross spirit points to is that it's all going to end. It will all rot in the end. And so that one of the prophets we looked at last week said, uh, the crushed spirit, who can bear it? What is it? It's that lonely, kind of quenching joy kind of position of life uh, that many, if not all of us, will face at some point. C.H. Spurgeon wrote a brilliant um, kind of article on this, and he describes it this way. The joy of life has been like the sun under an eclipse. And in the chill, dark, damp shade of a terrible sorrow, a believer has cowered down and shivered beneath the icy touch of doubt. In the valley, a believer does not know uh, what the trial is, and yet a strange, joy-killing feeling is upon him. All is suspense, surmise, and uncertainty. And the reality is that all of us are prone at some point in our lives, to feel on a kind of a spectrum of crushedness, as you might say. Now, if you've been so fortunate as to get to this stage in your life, whatever age you are, and think, oh, that's not been me, can I just say to you right now, praise God, thank God for his kindness, but realise that one day it will come. One day it will. And the intention last week was not to say, let's create a few crushed spirit, if we possibly can. <laughs> I wasn't meaning anyone should leave and feel, oh dear, that was a bit heavy and a bit, oh, I feel worn out by that. No, rather, the, the response ought to have been, I feel more prepared. If this is to come into my life, that I feel crushed through all of those elements that we've mentioned, I am now more prepared for it. Prepared not with just worldly wisdom, but with God's wisdom for that very possible reality. And we mustn't be naive. We live in a wonderful city, but the strains of London life, as Lyle's just mentioned in what he's doing at work, you know, and many of you experience that. The strains are immense, aren't they? And even we must be aware and not naive about the the strains of just human existence itself, that philosophical answer we're looking at, that one of us here will know one point in our lives where every single other person in this room will have died. And that is kind of the philosophical dimension to this crushed spirit. Jason reminded me this week that, that... uh, a, a character in the West Wing. I know many of us have watched West Wing. It's a great TV series, and I really, really enjoy it. But um, there's a character called Toby uh, Ziegler, isn't there? Uh, or Ziegler? Is it Ziegler or Ziegler? Ziegler. Uh, it's Toby, anyway. The guy, the slightly geeky guy. There we go. Uh, in one episode, he 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 claims just to naturally kind of be joyful and cheerful. He claims kind of immunity from the strains of life, and he says this: "My default position is happiness." 
And yet, if you know the television series, it, it, it kind of, it ends, and he's probably the most crushed of all the characters in the show. You see, we are not by nature content, happy, joyful. We are all prone to these bleak and lonely times and crushed spirit times of our lives. That's a bit of a reminder of last week. So what can we do? And, you know, how do we avoid this, this kind of crushed spirit? And if we feel that right now, what's the kind of the, the solution, the remedy? Now, what are we going to do with our emotions? I mean, last week there was a bit of a, a kind of remedy within one of the Proverbs, wasn't it? That we're to speak a cheerful word to one another, to, to lift one's spirit and, and that kind of thing. But we, lost, we saw also that what are we going to do with our conscience? And therefore, as the more crushed we are, the, the more we feel the kind of the guilt of things that perhaps we even have not, you know, we shouldn't feel guilty about. Do you remember that? No one pursues us though we feel guilty. And what are we going to do with all that existential angst that we were looking at as well? And how are we going to stop our hearts putting our ultimate hope and our ultimate trust in things that are just going to rot and disappear? All of these things lead to this crushed spirit. The secret, what are we going to do? The secret remedy? Well, we looked at it last week. Why don't you, if you turn with me, uh, quickly back to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12. Right in the centre of the Bible. Someone shout out a number if you can when we get there. Proverbs chapter 13. Six, four, seven. Thank you very much. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12. Proverbs um, mentions the remedy three times. And the remedy, surprisingly, is the tree of life. The tree of life. It's mentioned in chapter 318, 1130, and then in Proverbs 13 verse 12. It should come up on your screen as well. Now, it's in the Bible in other places, as you may know. And the interesting place it is, it, it comes right at the beginning at Genesis. And it comes in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. But what does that kind of tell us? It's there right at the beginning, it's there right at the end. And then it's just there in the wisdom of God, in three times in Proverbs. Well, it tells us it may be out of our reach. We're not at creation, uh, and we're not at the end, in the last day, in the new creation. But there is a little bit of wisdom that we therefore can glean from the word about the tree of life today. Let's think, about what, let's think about what the tree of life was back then, in, in Genesis, if we can, to begin with. What was it? It was in the middle of the garden, wasn't it? And the tree of life um, represented not only the eternity, the longevity of our lives, but also the, the experience of our lives, the fullness of our lives in every area. It's everything that you could ever want. That's what the tree of life is. Everything you could ever want. But what happened? By the end of Genesis 3, what happened? We'd lost it. The, the flaming swords of, of judgment were placed at the entrance of the garden. Adam and Eve were banished from the presence of God and away from that tree. The very thing that they wanted, they were banished from it. Adam, what he'd done, he basically decided, Adam and Eve, they decided that they wanted to be Lord, that they wanted to be Master. And the result... They had lost the tree of life, and as they are the figureheads of all humanity, we too had lost the tree of life. But look at that proverb, 13, verse 12. It says, 
Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That is a crushed spirit essentially there. But a longing fulfilled, a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Now what is it saying? God's wisdom here is telling us that our deepest longings, they will never, ever be fulfilled unless we get this tree, the tree of life. You know, career or a relationship, children, money, maybe even travel, experiences, success. They all promise so much, don't they? But they never, ever fulfill, do they? Completely. Why? One commentator put it this way on this verse. It's like a song that you remember but you've never heard. What you're looking for in love and intimacy that you've never felt. All that you're looking for in this life, in love and experience, in money, in absolutely every area of your life, you are actually, we are actually looking for, we're looking for everything in the tree of life. That's where all our hopes, all our dreams will be fulfilled, but we get a taste of them in in relationships, but it never fully fulfills us. The place of true fulfillment, of true content, is found in the tree of life. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the longings which arise in us when we, all, when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings that no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There is always something we grasp at in the first longing that fades away in the reality of life. Tim Keller kind of summarises that in one of his... Uh, books, he says, it feels like a lifelong nostalgia. A lifelong nostalgia. And once you get older, I, some of you here, you'll be going, yeah, I know what this feels like. Uh, you know, and it hurts, doesn't it? And what happens, I, I've got peers, maybe, you, you know, you've got friends as well, and they'll be thinking, right, I need to sort something out, because what I've got so far, whether it's a house or a family or whatever it may be, it's not quite doing what I want it to do. It doesn't quite fulfill. So what do they do? They get a bigger car, a bigger house. Or they, oh, they say, well, if London's not working, I'll go to that city instead. I'll do some travelling. You know, I'll, I'll move the family away. That was, no. You just want to find something new. People get frustrated and sad and they're in kind of lies that midlife crisis, or they kind of get very critical and, uh, and cynical and they become those kind of slightly grumpy old men and slightly grumpy old ladies. And whichever way you go, the point of Proverbs 13 is saying, hope is deferred. It's deferred. Your heart is sick. The spirit is crushed. You've put your hope in something, but it, it just hasn't fulfilled. Hope is deferred. You need the tree of life. And here's the cracking bit. Why then in Acts 5 and Acts 13 and 1 Peter 2.25 and Galatians 3 is Jesus described as the one who dies on a tree? He didn't die on a tree, he died on a cross. Why, they, why do the New Testament writers only say, oh, Jesus died on a tree? This is brilliant. You see, in the Garden of Eden, right back in Genesis, uh, God said to Adam, the first Adam, he said, obey me. Uh, and, and it was all about obey, obedience with regard to the tree, wasn't it? And he didn't. And therefore, he was banished. Now, he didn't obey, and therefore they died. 
Centuries later, Jesus comes into a different garden, doesn't he? And the Garden of Gethsemane this time. And God comes to Jesus and says, Obey me again about the tree. And Jesus did obey. The difference is, you see, with the first Adam, God said, Obey me and you will live. And to the second Adam, he said, Obey me and you will die on that tree. And you'll be crushed, essentially. Because when Jesus did go to the tree in utter obedience, he, well, he was crushed. He was crushed physically, wasn't he? We know that. We can, you can see that. You can visualize that. But he was crushed utterly and spiritually and eternally. Why does he cry, Elo, Elo, Lama Sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's utterly crushed. And he's utterly crushed for you and for me. That is the crushed spirit. And in Jesus being crushed, he's being crushed for you and he's being crushed for me so that we do not have to be. See, the the cross is this absolute tree of death for Jesus, but it becomes the tree of life for you and me. If we would dare trust in him. But it's got to go, it's got to go further than that. Yet we must let that tree of life be our ultimate hope, our ultimate kind of foundation for our trust and our belief. And we need to let that kind of permeate into every area of our lives. We must love and appreciate that gospel tree of life. Like it's like a soothing balm that you've got to apply to every area of your lives where it's hurting right now. So the emotional, the physical, the moral, that element of conscience and philosophical, whatever it may be, they can all, they can all be soothed by this amazing eternal balm of the tree of death for Jesus who becomes the tree of life for you and me. You see, it's only then, it's only then that we can begin to look today and and tomorrow and, and the weeks to come and see actually there's joy possible there. This contentment in whatever circumstance, in the days ahead. It's only when you know and appreciate all that's been done on that tree and, and, and all that you will looking forward to, to see the tree in its final day beside the river of life in the new garden of the new city of Jerusalem in that new creation, Revelation 22, verse 22. It's a a big introduction, I know, but I think it's an important one. The crushed spirit, who can bear? Well, the point is that Jesus bore it ultimately for you. And now we live in response to that. Knowing that contentment is possible, and it's even, as we're going to see now very quickly, it's commanded too. But amazingly, it is great gain for all of us. Well, let's begin to look at contentment, if we possibly can do we are, we are kind of going through our outline. Don't panic. We're, the next bit's much quicker. But let's begin to look at biblical contentment, if we can do. Biblical contentment is, is, is a joy. Of course it is. It is an, but it's an uncrushed spirit. Thinking about all that we've been looking at there. And it's founded on that gospel message of Jesus dying on that tree. But let's turn to Philippians 4, if we possibly can. And begin to see... Uh, some of what that contentment looks like. Just so you get a bit of an idea of the context of, uh, of Philippians 4. And if you look at it, verse 10, you'll see a kind of a burst of joy, if you like, from Paul there. 
Let me give you a bit of an understanding why that kind of burst of joy comes. Let me give you some background. Paul is in a Roman jail. We know that uh, from earlier in the, in the letter. He is hungry. He is cold. It's not like the jails of Great Britain. Paul made a point uh, never to accept any money from the, from the churches where he went to go and preach. Um, but he did that simply because he didn't want to, uh, if you like, dilute the message of free grace that he was teaching uh, to the churches. But here, we have in the, within this letter to the church in Philippi, Paul, now imprisoned, uh, is, is given this wonderful gift from the church in Philippi. And Epaphroditus stands there in his cell and he's rejoicing over it. His joy is just immense. The Macedonian churches of Philippi and Thessalonica have been praised for their generosity. He, Paul will mention Philippi later on in this chapter, but if you know, and you probably do, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he praises the Macedonian churches together there, and he uses them as an example of great generosity. Their giving is sacrificial and joyful. And the church in Philippi were therefore content in Christ. Though they were poor, their joy and peace was kind of genuinely pouring out of them through their generous giving. And that is what Paul is rejoicing over greatly here as we begin in this passage, chapter 4, verse 10. Look at it. Let's read it together just to remind ourselves. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So the Philippians, they've been generous, but Paul rejoices because of their renewed, literally their, their blossoming concern for him. So from verse 10, we see that the gift is not the cause of the rejoicing, rather the gift was the indicator of their blossoming faith. That, that is what Paul is rejoicing over. So he says in verse 11, I am not saying this because I am need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now this is where we get to the idea of what contentment biblically really is. Paul is using a really interesting phrase here, not often used in the Bible. And he's, he's taking a phrase that was very common and very well used within Stoic philosophy of the time. One commentator, a big chunk of commentator, he, he says it's like a meteor coming into the, book, into the letter. No one would have expected this word coming out. It's like it comes completely out of the, the, kind of the other, random, if you like, for them. But here it is. The Stoics, you see, they thought that contentment was the highest virtue of life. And contentment for the Stoic person, Stoic philosopher, uh, was independence from all things and all people. It's basically, you know it, you see it all around you, it's self-sufficiency. And you perhaps see it in your own heart too. A Stoic believed that contentment was to resist the power of, sorry, is to, with all the power of our will, to kind of resist the pull of circumstances around us, the, the force of circumstances. What Paul is doing here is he's taking that same phrase, commonly used by Stoic philosophers, and he's turning it on its head. And he transformed it into a kind of a Christ-centered contentment. So he's saying Paul and, and all those in Christ are to be God-sufficient, Trusting in his sufficiency alone, rather than self-sufficient. So Paul is content in every situation, whatever the circumstances, and, and no honest Stoic philosopher could ever say that. Paul trusts in the sufficiency of Christ. And he has had to learn this. And that's what we see in our first little sub-point. Contentment is learnt. It doesn't feel very nice, that, does it? We have to learn something. But contentment is learned. 
We see that clearly in verse 11. It's also there in verse 12. And literally saying, I've actually learned a mystery here. The secret of contentment. It's a secret because by nature we follow the world in believing that contentment is found by if I get that car, if I get that house, if I get that relationship, and all those kind of things. Getting what you want in this world. But biblical contentment is learned to be satisfied in God and in God alone and longing for glory with God. We have to learn this. Our thinking needs to be challenged and it needs to be changed. And God's way of achieving contentment, which is the only way of true contentment, is not our way. It is not the the natural human response, but we can and we must learn contentment. If we can learn it, secondly, it must be possible, you see there on our sheets. Now, I I put it this way for some of us, because some of us will really kind of be wondering, well, you know, I've always kind of been content. Or you might even be saying, I always struggle to be content. And I, I guess this is the point. It's saying it's possible to be content, even in our world today. And Paul in verse 12 shows that he has learned as he's grown in his faith, as he's being sanctified and, and by the Spirit through the Word. Paul shows that content is possible, not just in comfortable London, but in every circumstance. And he uses those little rhythmic phrases. Look down if you can. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have, in pl- have plenty. Let me just read from another translation. I think it's probably more helpful here. Uh, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Okay? See, the point is, the, he's, take a Stoic kind of philosophy word there, and he's saying, uh, you, a Stoic could never say that. A Stoic could never say, I will, I'm willing to be brought low. That is, to be humble, to be in need. To the Stoic, you see... And we, we get our kind of a, to do something stoically. We can bear with suffering. A stoic can say, oh yeah, I'll get through it. Stiff up a leg. Oh, you know, we're, British people are very stoic, aren't we, in that way. You know, I'll get through it. Like I'll get through this talk, even with those kids up there. <laughs> but humility, being lowered, stoic would never say that. But Paul chose it. We haven't got time, but if, if you want to note down 2 Corinthians 11, there's a, there's a number of other passages as well where Paul just lists what he's had to go through, how he's been lowered. Paul learned to be content and knew that even despite being brought to his lowest ebb, and in 2 Corinthians 11, here's some of the stuff. He was beaten, he was flogged, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked three times. He was in danger from all kinds of men, of bandits, of his own countrymen. Contentment was possible even at that lowest point. Oh, now Paul had many good times as well. And they're not written down so much in, in, in some of his letters. But you can imagine, can't you? Philippi is a, you know, a reasonable city. Uh, imagine Lydia, who, who was a, a merchant of cloth. She would have been a very wealthy lady. When she came to faith, you would imagine, and it would have been right culturally for a celebration meal to happen. There would have been abundance, uh, kind of flowing everywhere. Paul knew what it was to be very low, but also with a great deal of, of wealth around him. Same with the Philippine jailer recorded in Acts. You know, that when he came, his family came to faith, there would have been a celebration, there would have been great joy, great partying. He knew what it was to have much, and yet he knew what it was to have very little too. 
Paul was content in either extreme. Here's a point, though. It is probably much harder to be content when you have so much rather than when you have so little. Do you agree? Because you're, many of you have a great deal. John Calvin put it this way, a great reformer put it this way. He who knows how to use present abundance soberly and temperately with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything when it may please the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to his ability, and is not puffed up. That man has learned to excel. This is an excellent and rare virtue, and much greater than the endurance of poverty. Paul had grown in his faith and dependence on the suffering saviour of the tree of life. And so much so that he, he learnt the possibility and the reality of being content when he had a great deal. But also when he had very little too. Self-sufficiency had been utterly transformed into a dependency on the, the utter sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In every circumstance, it lifted his heart and his life from a, a looking for just kind of worldly wealth and depending on that to trusting in the wealth that Jesus had brought him on the cross. And therefore Paul summarises, look at verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now this is not saying, you know, from this verse, I can do everything. Therefore, why don't I just get some out some very sharp knives and start juggling? Even though I can't do it, what's going to happen? I'm going to cut my hands. Even if I say and utterly believe... I can do everything in the strength of Jesus Christ. No, don't be silly. Yeah, if you can't drive a car, if you don't have a license, don't stick this on the dashboard and think, oh, I'll be fine. No. Okay? Apparently, I was uh, reading someone, and they said, even in some American gyms, they have this on the ceiling as guys are bench pressing. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. But Paul is saying he can be content in every situation, he can do everything. He can do all of those things that I mentioned. Prison, shipwreck, being stoned, abused, everything, but only through him. That is, with Christ's strength, of the things that Jesus has ordained for his life to occur. And with that, I've, I've, it's a slightly spurious little title I've put there. Contentment is, is empowering, I've put there. That is, empowered by Jesus for, for his glory and for his sake, with, in his sovereignty. Paul has learned to be content in every situation, whatever his circumstances, through the strength of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, though, contentment is, is, a command, is commanded. Turn just back, we, we didn't read it out, but Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. You know it very well. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, you know there are, there are numerous passages in the Bible that, that command the Christian to be joyful, to rejoice. And joy is kind of contentment's inseparable travelling companion. That's William Barclay's little phrase. It results from knowing that God is in control of over all things. Let me just read to you Hebrews 13 verse 5 as well. Look at it later if you want. Hebrews 13 verse 5 simply says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. Be content with what you have. It's a command. Be content, Christians, with what you have. 
John 14 verse 15 says, if you love me, you will obey your commands. You see, putting those three together, if you love God, if you, you will obey him and you will hear his command to be content. You will strive towards contentment in your lives. But you know that it, therefore it must be for your good and for his glory. Lastly, why don't we flick to this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Contentment is great gain. We're nearly there. And then we'll have a chance for a couple of questions, I think, at the end. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Page 1194 in your Bibles. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Now, you know the passage, I guess, that Paul is contrasting here. Um, worldly wealth with the pursuit of contentment. Um, and basically what he's saying, to summarise, he's saying, the thing that really matters for all of us is the things of eternity. Therefore, you see, the key to contentment is focusing and investing in, in the wealth of God's kingdom, inward wealth, the riches of our heart, moulded by Christ and his word. You see, if we begin to focus and invest on the outward wealth of possessions, even of our relationships, and they become idols to us, anything that is outward... That, will never be satisfied. We will never be content. Because those things will rot, essentially. And it may even lead to a crushed spirit, as we looked earlier. Let's conclude. Remember, Christ has been crushed for us so that we can live for righteousness. That's 1 Peter 2, verse 25. Uh, our wounds have been healed, ultimately by him on the tree of life. So as a result, what do we do? We live content in him. Content in every circumstance. Now this will not naturally flow from us. We need to learn it. We need to grow in our faith as we feed on God by his word. And that spirit of God working through that word. We grow. We become more content in our circumstances. Because eyes are no longer fixed on the things around us. But they're fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the heavenly glory to come, Revelation 22 verse 2, where we will be standing before the tree of life with the throne before us and the river of life going down beside us. What a joyful picture that is. So a practical point to end. How you define yourself, you see, really matters. In your head and your heart. And I guess it's to use some of those Pauline phrases. That, are you in Christ? You see, if you are, that is dependent on him, sufficient, uh, fully kind of depending on his sufficient work on the cross. If you see yourself in him, made in his image, living to glorify him, if that is you, then contentment is found in knowing who you are, molded, made, saved by him. Are you in Christ? If you understand yourself as not that, that is, if you understand yourself as autonomous, self-sufficient, wanting to do exactly as you feel, and if that is you, then you will, well, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be content. You'll always be itching for kind of more. And all you'll ever know, as Tim Keller said, is that lifelong nostalgia as you search for something that cannot, cannot be found in anything but Christ and the tree of life. 
Let me finish with this quote. I put it up on the screens. I think it's on the, your screens at the end there. It comes from uh, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And I thought it summarises this whole subject fairly well. Contentment is the duty, the glory, and the excellence of the Christian. Contentment is the duty, the glory, and the excellence of the Christian. Why don't I pray? As I pray, why don't we just think as well? I'll pray quickly and then we'll just have a couple of moments. If anyone wants to ask a question, perhaps give some insight and application, um, or just maybe some clarification from what we said, then uh, that'll be a time to stick your hand up and ask. Why don't I just pray briefly as we close? Heavenly Father, in, in our culture we do struggle um, and many, many people are always striving for more. There is so much discontentment around us, but therefore, please urge us all the more as Christians to strive to be content in every circumstance, as Paul was, languishing in jail, without so much, cold and hungry again and again. And yet he could say he was content in every circumstance. He'd learnt it. He'd diligently come back to the glorious gospel where Jesus had been hung on a tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness and our wounds have been healed. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. And in him, in Christ, may we know this contentment that is our duty, but also is, is glorifying to you and the excellence of us. It is the best way to live. May we all know that, we pray. Amen. Before we sing our last song, which is a, a very well chosen song, I'll tell you a bit about the song, shall I? And then you can muster up some courage if you want to. Um, <clears throat> it's, a great, it's a great song written by Spafford, isn't it? Yes. Who... In hearing that his wife and his children had died, uh, they drowned uh, mid-Atlantic, wrote this amazing song, It Is Well With My Soul. We're going to sing in a moment, but has anyone got any questions, points, clarification, insight, that kind of thing? No, sure. big picture here is that the contentment is found, and certainly with Paul, in every circumstance, because he, his eyes are not focused on the fact that he was languishing in jail, but rather he was focused on his, on his Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, seated, enthroned, and, and ushering him home for that day to come. So yeah, the, the, the sovereignty picture of God gives us it. It fixes our eyes in that Hebrews language, fixes our eyes on Jesus. That's really helpful. Any other questions, maybe? No? That's great. Let's stand. Let's sing together.
Then when we get to the chorus, it is well, always saying that it goes to the first 